tonight then, let us return to Acts chapter 2, to that portion of Scripture that we read. We'll choose verse 36 for our text, the last verse that we read. Verse 36 of Acts chapter 2, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. We have been looking at this section for one or two weeks, and we now come to this section here where the Apostle Peter really gets down to the nitty-gritty of his evangelistic preaching. And this is what we have here, evangelistic preaching at its best. Last Lord's Day evening, we looked at the previous section, which ended at verse 21, that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And in that section that preceded that verse, there the Apostle Paul, uh, the Apostle Peter, brings to the attention of his hearers why what has happened. Now what happened? Well, the Holy Spirit came and uh, the disciples and the apostles were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in tongues and their message was the wonderful works of God. And those foreign Jews who were there were amazed at this. And therefore, Peter, first of all, tells them why this came about. It was a fulfillment of the prophet Joel, or one of the prophets, one of the prophecies of the prophet Joel. And he was reminding them that this was a one-off event, something that had been prophesied, and they were in the last days. In other words, this was the last time when God was going to be working in this manner. At that time, there was no other special event that was to happen. When Jesus Christ came, that was the beginning of the last days. And when he returns, that will be the end of the last days. And so therefore, he finishes off that first section of his sermon by telling the people that what had happened was a fulfillment of prophecy. And he finishes off telling them, And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now in the section that we're going to look at tonight, which is from verses 22 to 36, what do we find? Well, there we have the apostle Peter telling them who the Lord is. He tells them before that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, if they're going to be saved, they must know who this Lord is. It's not just anyone. It's a particular person. And therefore, in this section here, he seeks to outline who this Lord is, the one that they are to call upon. And as one commentator said, what we have really in uh, this section, or what we might say even in our 
in our text that we have chosen in verse 36. What we have here is the first apostolic sermon, which leads to the first apostolic creed. What does it say? Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. And the title I'd like to give to our meditation tonight is quite simply, Jesus is Lord. This is what he wants to impress upon his hearers. If they're to call upon the name of the Lord, then they must know who the Lord is, and Jesus is the Lord. As we said, we do believe we have uh, exemplary evangelistic preaching here. And it's important that we would realize that this is not all that the Apostle Peter said. What we really have here is a very concise, brief summary, maybe even his headings, if you like. But first of all, in our introduction, we would notice that he is quick to identify himself with the readers. We didn't read it, or we read at the beginning, for instance, verse 14, but Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea, and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words. He is identifying with his hearers. And verse 22, ye men of Israel, he was a man of Israel himself. He was therefore speaking to his own countrymen. And verse 29, what do we find? Men and brethren. He's speaking to them, yes, as a preacher, yes, as an apostle, but he's able to identify with them. He was just like them. And therefore, this is a great help in evangelistic preaching, that the preacher might get along and go alongside his hearers, that he might be able, in some sense, to identify with them, that they might know that somehow this person knows me, this person is getting alongside me, this person has my best interests at heart. Therefore, he identifies with his hearers. There are three things that I wish to highlight from this portion of Scripture for us. Three things that Peter impresses upon his hearers. What are they? Well, the first thing is, he is demonstrating conclusively that God owned Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ came with the full authority of heaven. He was not on a freelance mission. He was sent from heaven, and God owned his work. What do we find in verse 22? Ye men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you. He was approved by God. And that can be seen by the miracles and wonders and signs which he did. And all of these things were pointing to the fact that this man had a commission. This man came from heaven. 
He came with the full approval of God the Father in heaven. He didn't come by his own accord. He was sent on a mission. And that mission was ultimately to go to Calvary and to lay down his life and to undertake everything that was required of him in order that he would purchase an everlasting salvation for his people. By miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. And he was appealing to the fact that although some of them may well have been absent during the ministry of the Lord Jesus, yet they were not ignorant. They had heard about this person. They had heard about this one who had a wonderful public ministry for about three years. And the Bible tells us in the book of Acts, he went about doing good and no one could deny it. It was clear and it was evident to anyone who would look and investigate or think or ponder that Jesus Christ was wonderful in their midst. And the things that he did were not done in a corner. When he raised people to life, it was clear and obvious that he had done and performed a wonderful miracle. When he had fed the 5,000 and then the 4,000, and when he had done all kinds of miracles, they were all signs, they were all telling people, this is no ordinary individual. This man is more than simply a prophet. This was the Messiah, this was the Christ. This was, was the one that was long promised for. And finally, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. And the Lord owned him. What did he say at his baptism? This is my beloved son. What did he say at the, at the transfiguration? This is my beloved son, hear ye him. This was a voice from heaven telling all around them that they are to listen to the Lord Jesus Christ. For he alone is the one who has come from heaven with the full authority of a divine commission. God owned the Lord Jesus Christ. And God owned his miraculous ministry. What he did, friends, he did in the power and in the demonstration of the Spirit. And this was all attesting to him. And therefore this was going to lead to the fact is, well, here is one whom God has approved. And if God has approved him, are you going to reject him? This is the implication. But Peter here is beginning to lay down his groundwork. And he is going to present to them as Christ, the one who is the Lord that they must trust. And therefore they must trust upon that one whom God has provided. And God has vindicated his miraculous ministry. But secondly, he goes on then to talk really about his resurrection. He says here in verse 23, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. 
This is not an easy verse for us to comprehend. And I would put it to you, we possibly cannot fully comprehend this verse because it is t telling us about the sovereignty of God and man's responsibility and accountability. Surely when it talks here about being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, this is telling us that ultimately when Jesus Christ went to Gethsemane and then went to Calvary, it was all part of God's plan of redemption. And ultimately, it was God who put him on the cross. It was something that God had decreed and willed and foreordained. It would come to pass. And the Lord Jesus Christ knew this. He knew that ultimately, he had come to die. And had he not died, there would be no gospel. There would be no gospel preaching. And there would be no hope for any one of us. He had to die. And it was all part of God's determined counsel and foreknowledge. God, in some sense, delivered him, handed him over. But that doesn't mean to say that men who played their part in this dastardly deed are innocent. Far from it. Pontius Pilate was the, the governor. And he should have done what was true. He should have acted according to his conscience. And he should have let the Lord Jesus Christ go. Because he was innocent. But he did what he did. Judas did what he did. The people cried out, crucify him, crucify him. They did what they did. And they are accountable for their actions. Man is responsible. We are to live our lives according to the revealed will of God. And the revealed will of God would tell us that Jesus was innocent. And those who played their part and crucify him, crucifying him were guilty. Now this is difficult for us. We cannot reconcile it, but the Bible teaches us this clearly. God's sovereignty in all matters and man's responsibility and accountability. As one said to me some time ago, God has foreordained the free actions of men. God has foreordained the free actions of men. God does not cause anyone to sin. God does not tempt anyone to sin. It's impossible for God to do this. Nevertheless, Christ was delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. This indeed should cause us to rejoice ultimately because it was the will of God that he would suffer. And if he did not suffer and if he did not die, we would not be here tonight. There would be no good news. There would be no hope for mankind. 
because God has determined that he would suffer and die. But the Lord Jesus Christ not only died and was buried, but he rose again. And this is a large part of what he has, Peter is saying here to his hearers. He's talking here about Christ's resurrection. And he's going to the Old Testament, to that part of that psalm that we sang in Psalm 16. And that psalm was written by David. And he concludes rightly that although David was a godly individual and he, his salvation was rooted and grounded upon God and upon what he would do, yet David died and his grave, his sepulcher was with them that day and he was in the grave. He was smoldering in the grave. But the Lord Jesus Christ, on the third day, he rose victorious over the grave. And therefore that psalm was ultimately going to be applied to the Lord Jesus Christ. It was for him. He was the one who was going to destroy death and bring life and immortality to light through the gospel. And therefore he begins to speak to them about the resurrection. Now in some sense, he might have had an easy time with them. Why do we say this? Well, the Jews did believe in a resurrection. Had he gone to the pagans and spoken about this, they might have laughed him out of court without giving him a hearing. But the Jews did believe in a resurrection. But it wasn't exactly the resurrection that Peter was going to be talking about. What kind of resurrection did they believe in? Well, they believed in a resurrection at the end of the world, a general resurrection, which we, of course, believe in also. But they had no concept of one person being raised to life in the resurrection, and then some time afterwards there would be another uh, general resurrection of everybody. They had no concept of that whatsoever. And their belief in the resurrection was quite simply a belief in the physical resurrection of the same body. In other words, it would just be exactly the same as the body that had died. There would be no difference. And therefore, Peter had to tell them something completely different in some respects. Peter had to, had to overcome some things. When Peter spoke about the resurrection, he had to overcome the fact that Christ succumbed to death like everyone else. He was one who suffered and died just like the whole of mankind. In that respect, he was no different from any other individual. And this would be something that would be an obstacle to his hearers. Another obstacle was the fact that Jesus died on a cross. And according to the scripture, because he died on a cross, he was under the evident curse of God. In Deuteronomy chapter 21 and verse 23, it speaks about this, talking about those who have been crucified. His body shall not remain all night upon the tree, 
but thou shalt in any wise bury him that day. For he that is hanged is accursed of God. And therefore, when Peter would talk about Jesus being crucified, they would instantly come to realize that he was accursed of God being crucified. Another obstacle to them accepting the resurrection of Christ was he died at the hands of the uncircumcised. He died at the hands of the Romans. And the Romans were hated by the Jews. And this would be something else that would put them off believing in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there was another thing. Was it not true that Jesus had been judicially condemned by the great high council of the Jews, the holy Sanhedrin? Yes, we know it was false, but nevertheless, as far as the people were concerned, he was condemned by the highest court of the Jewish church, and therefore this would be another obstacle to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, or to them believing in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But again, what does he say? Whom God hath raised up, in verse 24, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. There he tells them, that all that happened to the Savior was because God had foreordained it. He had foreordained his death. And as the scriptures testify, he had foreordained that he should rise again. The first fruits of those who rise from the dead. Having been loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. According to the, the language of the day, this part here where it says it was not possible, it's like when a woman is pregnant and she's about to give birth. And the ladies, of course, will know this, that when the time comes for the delivery, there is nothing that can stop it. Nothing that can stop it. It will come to pass. Well, that's the way it was for the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was in the grave on the Friday and the Saturday, but on the first day of the week, it was not possible that he should be holden of it. Death could no longer hold on to him. He had broken the bands of death. And like that pregnant woman, that child would have to come out and have to be born. And so it was with the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, he is impressing upon him the reality of the resurrection. And what's more, he is telling them that they have seen him on many occasions. Now, this was a bold move for Peter. Let's just bear in mind what happened not that long before. 
They crucified the Lord Jesus Christ. And Peter and the other disciples were in some sense afraid. But now he was there declaring that Christ was crucified and now he was alive and risen and that he had seen him. And it was all part of God's wonderful, glorious plan of redemption. Well, thirdly, the third thing that he impresses upon them in his sermon is Christ's exaltation to the right hand of God. Verse 34, again speaking of David, David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand. This was never applied to David. David was still in the tomb. David was smoldering in the dust. This was said of the Messiah. This was said of the Christ. This was said of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that he has suffered and died, now that he has risen, now that he has entered into heaven again, he has been exalted to God's right hand. Now the place of the right hand is the place of highest honor, highest glory, that's the position of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what he's telling them. Ye men of Israel, verse 22, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Is that not what one of the apostles said when they heard about Jesus? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Well, Peter was telling them, this Jesus of Nazareth, whom ye have crucified, he has now ascended up into heaven, and he's at the right hand of God, even as he would speak. That's the Lord that they are to call upon. Therefore he says, let all the house of Israel let everyone know, let the foreign Jews, let the home Jews, let them all know, know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, the one whom they rejected. Is that not what it says to us in John's gospel? He came unto his own, and his own received him not. That's what happened. Well, Israel may reject him. Others may reject him. But God has received him. And God has exalted him to the highest position in the whole of the universe. That's where he is tonight for the Christian. That's where your Savior is. Waiting for that day when he shall return in power and in great glory. That God hath made that same Jesus. And here's the edge to what he says. Whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. This was a tremendous sermon. Tremendous sermon delivered with power and with pathos. 
to his fellow countrymen, delivered boldly without fear, telling them clearly, sincerely about the Lord Jesus Christ, about his exaltation, about his resurrection, and about the fact that he has come with the full authority of heaven. God alone has owned all of his works because he is the God-appointed Savior. Well, what about ourselves this evening? 2,000 years ago, this sermon was preached and 3,000 were added to the church as a result. Here we are with far more knowledge at our disposal. I'm not going to say that we have more knowledge, but we have far more knowledge at our disposal. We have a complete canon of Scripture. We have 2,000 years of church history. What are we doing with Jesus Christ? Do we realize that he is Lord? Do we realize that although the world may forsake him, although the world may reject him as they always have and disdain him and, and think little of him and use his name as a swear word and blaspheme his name day by day, what is he to us? What is he to you? this night. Is he your Lord? God has made him Lord and Christ. The highest ruler in the universe. This is what he is now, today. A glorious and a wonderful Savior who was crucified but rose again and is exalted. And now he's in that state of exaltation. And that final part of his exaltation is yet to come when he shall return in power and in glory. When we shall see him with the clouds and every eye shall see him, we're told, and Revelation chapter 1. Every eye shall see him, even those that pierced him. Why is this? Well, it's because they will be resurrected. There will be a resurrection when Jesus Christ returns. Because Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the one whom God has appointed. Have we received him then? Do we follow him? Do we call upon him? Is he ours? Can we say like Thomas did when he saw the risen Lord? Can we concur with his words, my Lord and my God? Do you see how personal it was 
my Lord and my God, the one who has suffered in my room and place, the one who has reconciled me to God, the one who has given me this great hope that my sins are forgiven and therefore I am accepted in the Beloved. Is he Lord then? Yes, he's Lord. But is he your Lord? How can he be my Lord? How can I know him? The only way you can know him is to come unto him. What did Peter say? Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's what's required of us, to call upon him. And whosoever will, he will receive. Therefore, let us come and call upon Jesus the Lord. Amen. And may God be pleased to bless unto us.